Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. One of the very first things that the Trump administration did after taking office was to roll back federal rules protecting trans students from discrimination in schools. Yep, you heard that right. One of the very first things. Just a few hours ago, the Trump administration said it will roll back federal protection for transgender students. This rollback of rights came from Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education. Regardless of his callousness, this is the kind of change an administration can do without approval from Congress. Basically, without any checks and balances. But when Betsy DeVos went before the House Education Committee, Representative Suzanne Bonamici of Oregon had some really tough questions for her and her Office of Civil Rights. It's called the OCR. When you rolled back that guidance, did you know that the stress of harassment and discrimination can lead to lower attendance in grades as well as depression and anxiety for transgender students? Did you know that? Congressman, OCR is committed to ensuring mm. all students have equal access to an education free from did, discrimination. Did you, did you know when, uh, sorry, I, I would really like an answer. Students and families need to know this. Did you know when you rolled back the guidance that the stress of harassment and discrimination can lead to lower attendance in grades as well as depression for transgender students? Did you know that when you rolled back the guidance? I do know that, but I will say again that OCR is committed to ensuring that all students or have access to their education um, free from discrimination. Let me ask you this as well. When you roll back the guidance, did you know that a study recently published by the American Academy of Pediatrics revealed alarming levels of attempted suicide among transgender youth? Did you know that as well when you roll back that guidance? I, I'm aware of uh, that data. She was aware, and she did it anyway. But the attacks on trans people during the Trump administration didn't just come from the education department. They came from across the government. The Trump administration executed a consistent policy to try to erase trans people and to deny basic human rights. They urged the Supreme Court to legalize employment discrimination against us. They moved to roll back housing protections. The president himself got trans people banned from the military. The administration even sought to strip trans-inclusive language out of human rights documents at the United Nations. It was an across-the-board strategy to purge trans people from any official recognition and to push our community to the fringes. It wasn't just coming from the Trump team, though. This effort to erase trans people was a coordinated attack between his administration and one of the most powerful think tanks in America. And the power of this think tank isn't going away anytime soon. One anti-trans policy that it drove in particular is still hanging on. It gives doctors the right to turn away trans patients from medical care, even when their life depends on it. Hi there. 
I'm Amara Jones. You're listening to The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. It's a podcast that's looking at the right-wing leaders, political ideology, and power behind the rise of anti-trans hate. Now, over the last several weeks, we've explored the driving forces behind legislation in over 30 states to ban trans youth from getting equal access to medical care and to keep trans girls, in particular, out of sports. This episode, we're digging into the organization behind the push to deny us rights nationally by infiltrating the federal government, especially during the last administration. And even though Trump is gone, the group behind everything they did, literally the people and their ideas are still at it. These people were on a mission, and that mission didn't end for them just because they lost a presidential election. When Donald Trump was elected, his administration needed to fill thousands of positions in the federal government. He hadn't expected to win, and he didn't have a deep political network to help him fill those thousands of empty seats. One of the most influential right-wing think tanks saw a huge opportunity in all of this, the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation marries conservative religious ideals with physically conservative policies. It's right-wing ideology with a suit and a briefcase. And Trump's surprise win gave them the opportunity to do what they had wanted to do for decades, reshape the United States government in their own image. Basically, now was Heritage's chance. So they got to work right away. One of the founders of Heritage joined the Trump transition team in one of the most powerful positions. He oversaw the appointment of health, education, and housing policy officials for the administration. They even boasted about it. Here's Tommy Binion, Heritage's VP of Government Relations on Fox News. Tommy, I know it's a badge of honor, but some people may say uh, approximately 70 former Heritage employees either work for the Trump transition team or are now part of the administration. Is that too much influence by one particular organization? No, I don't think so. Um, that's absolutely a, a strategy of the Heritage Foundation uh, to, uh, to better the country. Uh, the individuals, the researchers, the smart people here at the Heritage Foundation have a passion for this country. They're patriots. And they went to work in the administration to make the country a better place. Each time the Trump administration had an opening, the Heritage Foundation made a list. Page after page of people to fill each position. Heritage? had massive authority. They even made the president a list of Supreme Court nominees to choose from. I promised that if elected, I would nominate a justice who would be faithful and loyal to the Constitution. And that's exactly what we did. And by the way, I want to thank, really, Heritage. I mean, those, those people have been fantastic. They've been real. They've been real friends. After just that first year of Trump's presidency, Heritage announced that the administration had embraced more than 60% of their policy recommendations. It was the fulfillment of that vision, the one a half century in the making. Having risen to prominence during the Reagan administration, they now have the power to transform the government. So over the next four years, Heritage infused their values into the bureaucracy. Values like anti-trans hate. And one of the ways they went about that was through healthcare. To understand exactly how, we have to go back a year 
to the summer of 2020. That's when the administration dropped a new policy making it legal for healthcare workers to refuse trans people medical care. The Trump administration plans to overturn a regulation that protects transgender patients from healthcare discrimination. This was June of 2020, peak pandemic, daily Black Lives Matter protests. So not a lot of people were paying attention to this. But Tanya Asapodson Johnson Walker was. She's a Black trans woman and a veteran activist. Tell us a little bit about how you felt last year when you heard that the Trump administration was going to institute a rule which would allow trans people to be denied equal access to health care. Oh, it was like someone dropped a house on me because I was already having problems in healthcare. I had lung cancer twice. Tanya understands the stakes of a policy like this. She's lived them. You could be having a heart attack as a trans person and you could go to the emergency room and the emergency room doctor could say, it's because of my religion, I can't treat you. Um, There's no other doctors here, but I'm going to have to leave the room now. And then they leave you there to die in the emergency room because of their religion. I wish Tanya was exaggerating here, but she's not. Our civil rights are tenuous. Without formal protections, trans people have hardly any recourse if doctors decide to discriminate against us. That's why a policy like this one from Health and Human Services is deadly. And Tanya says that taking away her rights hurts doubly because of her years of service in the military for a country now trying to deny her basic humanity. I was willing to lay my life on the line for the United States of America. And it's like a slap in the face. It's like, uh, you shouldn't exist. You don't belong here. So in June of last year, Tanya starts talking to Jason Starr. He's the director of litigation for the Human Rights Campaign. Jason's a Black cis gay man and says trans women inspired him to become the activist that he is today. So as soon as the rule came down, he was ready to get moving on a lawsuit. Tanya was the first person I called and um, I said, would you be willing to talk to me? Would you be willing to tell me your story? And she's like, are you kidding me? Of course. I've been waiting for this opportunity. Around that time, he was on the streets protesting the murder of George Floyd. And he was ready to fight. I think I had that energy of, we have to fight. Like, we're in crisis, communities in crisis, and they need us to show up. That All that energy of trauma and pain that we experienced, like, in real time in the summer, the ignoble choices that I was having to make between putting my personal health at risk by going out to protest versus staying at home and watching my people murdered on the street. So that was what was going on with me. Jason wanted to take that momentum for change that he was feeling protesting into his day job. So when the rollback of trans protections happened, he was ready to spring into action. This rule being dropped seemed, it it landed so egregiously on everyone. The day that it was announced uh, was the the anniversary of, of the Pulse shooting. And so, you know, again, it just seemed like, why? Why do this now? Why do this in the middle of a pandemic? Why do this when so many people are in need? How heartless and cold can you be? And on top of all of that, it was Pride Month. As Jason was planning to sue the government with Tanya, he thought about other people who he knew that would be vulnerable to this Trump administration rule. 
The person that sprung to mind was Cecilia Gentile. He knew her from prior activism, too. I grew up being extremely queer. I grew up in a dictatorship. Um, I grew up in a place where, like, being yourself was not rewarded. uh, And it was um, actually uh, persecuted. Cecilia grew up during the military dictatorship in Argentina. So when she saw what was happening with the Trump administration, rolling back healthcare protections and targeting an entire group of people, it brought back fears that she thought that she'd left behind. The Trump administration was so traumatizing for me because it was a sense of relieving a familiar feeling. It was a sense of relieving my childhood years where you did not have a choice, that it was determined, life was determined by the government. And it felt so close to that living in a dictatorship that it was really scary. It was really, really scary. For years, Cecilia lived with addiction stemming from her trauma and marginalization as an undocumented sex worker. Drugs kind of like helped me, you know, deal with my reality. But now she's found a way to channel her trauma into something more positive. Every time I fight for something that I believe in, I'm high. I am speed bowling like if I sh- just shot something into my veins. Activism became my drug. Every day is like I chase. I chase the same high that I used to chase with heroin. I chase it through activism. So when Jason called her to ask her to join the lawsuit to block the new health policy, she says there was no hesitation. It was like, I ha- it's, it's no way that I would not do this. I have to do this for myself and and I have to do this for my community. We have to fight. It's, it's this fight, it never ends. But hey, it's an opportunity to get high to me. Who doesn't want to be high? <laughs> <laughs> hey, more fights ahead mean more highs for Cecilia. So you're like, let's let's do it. Let's do it. Keep me high. <laughs> Keep me high, conservatives. So Cecilia, Tanya, and Jason start working on a lawsuit. And they move fast. They pulled the case together in less than two weeks after the government announced the rule. The three of them agreed that Tanya and Cecilia's own personal gut-wrenching stories were an essential part of the legal strategy to convince the judge to do the right thing. Despite the need to relive these experiences over and over, Tanya and Cecilia knew exactly what they had to do. Cecilia told about how Not long after she moved to the U.S., she was having really bad stomach pain and needed to see a doctor right away. The problem is that she didn't have many options. She was uninsured and undocumented at the time. But then she found a doctor 
that she could actually afford to go see. So when the doctor came and somehow came across my genitalia, he stepped back and told me that I had to go. And I said, I, I, I paid my $60. And I said, I, they will give it back to you. And I said, but I'm still sick. He's like, you have to go somewhere else. I am not going to see you. I wish I could explain my feelings at the moment. I don't think I can put it in words. It's just like this person who is supposed to heal me is not doing it. What am I what am I gonna do? She worried that if she filed a complaint, that the authorities would find out that she was without documents and that she'd be deported. After that, Cecilia never felt safe going to the doctor. I didn't ever see medical providers anymore. We had in Miami, it was Jackie. It was like this um, uh, black Cuban trans woman who would sell us hormones, would sell us stomach medication, would sell us antibiotics, would sell us everything. That was, Jackie was the doctor and the pharmacy. And that was my understanding of medicine, you know, you can go to the doctor and your only choices are Jackie and luck. Fast forward to today. Cecilia runs a trans equity consulting business and travels a lot for work. Even now, she's afraid about what could happen if she had a medical emergency on the road. That dark cloud of the memories from Miami of like, what about if I go to a doctor and I'm refused while in Texas? What is going to protect me then? This kind of discrimination is something all too common for trans people. Believe me. According to a survey done by the National Center for Transgender Equality in 2010, about one in five trans people report being turned away at doctor's offices. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment... I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. For Tanya, one of her worst experiences was just in 2017. It was when she was hospitalized for surgery to have her lung cancer removed. I was treated terrible. Even the social worker said, I'll call you what I see you as. And refusing, after I gave her transgender 101, to call me by my gender pronouns and everything. Tanya says that even nurses would misgender her and talk about her like she wasn't even in the room. And on top of that, the staff neglected Tanya. They were really rough with me. They wouldn't come in my room. Um, They left me laying in diarrhea. This is something out of a nightmare. She had to take care of it herself. 
and can only use one of her arms after the surgery. She remembers crawling on the floor while dragging her oxygen tank and IV pole. And I had to clean my own, I had to clean my own bed, my own floor, my own room, because the only time they would come in was to give me medication. So it's clear that Tanya and Cecilia know what not having equal access to healthcare means for trans people. But the people fighting against Tanya and Cecilia don't care about who they're hurting. They're only concerned with ideology. In defending its trans healthcare rule in 2020, the government made an ideological argument dressed up as a legal one. It said that Tanya and Cecilia had no rights, specifically no rights as trans women. The government contended that they are not covered by civil rights sex protections because those only apply to biological sex and not trans people. This argument, everything, which caused Tanya and Cecilia's healthcare fight, flows from one man. And when it comes to trans people, he's the pivotal member of the Trump administration. Healthcare, science, medicine, are based on a biological reality of male and female. That was Roger Severino. He's the powerful, politically appointed bureaucrat at the Department of Health and Human Services who created the anti-trans rule that's being litigated. All that is at risk of being swept aside in the name of an unscientific ideology that's trying to wipe those all away and say they're just social constructs. That's ultimately what this comes down to. They will couch this in terms of anti-discrimination, but when the rubber meets the road, what is this actually going to do? It's going to say doctors and scientists have to ignore biological realities, whether or not a doctor thinks it's bad medicine or it's against their religious beliefs or their moral convictions. And his obsession with biological sex started from his powerful position at the Heritage Foundation. Now, before he became a publicly funded federal employee, Roger was at the Heritage Foundation as head of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. The center was created with DeVos family money. And if you're wondering if we're meaning as in Betsy DeVos, the answer is yes, you got it. That center exists to infuse right-wing Christian ideology and policy into the federal government. At Heritage, not surprisingly, while helming the DeVos Center, he was the anti-trans czar. And for him, biological sex was rooted in the Bible. This biblical interpretation of man and woman is what he argues gives people the religious freedom to deny trans rights. In his view, it's your civil right to abandon constitutionally mandated equality if it conflicts with your morals or religion. That means if giving a trans person medical care violates your beliefs, you shouldn't have to do it. It turns the idea of civil rights into a right to discriminate. When asked about whether his vision for civil rights would allow healthcare workers to deny care in an NPR interview, here's what Roger said. It actually enhances diversity to have people from all walks of life with different views on controversial questions mm-hmm. able to practice the practice of medicine. And but I think my question is out, about, mm-hmm. yeah, I think my question is about the consequences of that move, though, right? The consequences of that move is, is that someone could be denied a healthcare procedure that they might want. Well, it depends what you're talking about. I, I think denial is a very strong word. Um, what these uh, contraceptions say is that the government itself 
cannot discriminate in its federal funding against providers who simply want to serve the people they serve according to their religious beliefs. If, right. if you do, or think about the opposite. If you were to ban people uh, from practicing medicine, you'd have religious hospitals excluded from the public square because they want to follow their faith in helping the poor, the sick, and the elderly, and, and retain the religious identity without violating their conscience in doing so. What Roger's saying here sounds sophisticated, but it's actually absurd. Under this view, it's not just doctors and individual healthcare staff who should be able to refuse trans patients. Entire hospitals would be allowed to deny care. His basic idea is that the ability to discriminate is the only way that you can be a religious institution and serve the public. Let that sink in. Now, chances are you haven't heard of Roger, and that's part of his strategy. He works hard to remain out of the public eye and to obfuscate his views. We may be having some different directions on the edges, but when it comes to civil rights, we've been heading westward. We're not going to go eastward all of a sudden, but it may be a little bit northwest, or a little bit southwest versus what it was before. But on the core of civil rights, because it's rooted in human dignity, we're still going full speed ahead. The way that Roger talks about all of this is actually genius. He frames what he's doing in a way that makes him sound like he's advancing civil rights instead of rolling them back. Charita Gruberg is with the Center for American Progress. She sees Roger as the architect of the anti-trans attacks under the Trump administration. You can see through his writing at the Heritage Foundation, he was leading, laying down the groundwork for opposing decades of legal precedent on what sex means and replacing that with his own views of a definition of sex that essentially erases transgender people. And he took those ideas into the Trump administration. Once inside, Roger had regular meetings across the federal government. And with that influence, pushed his anti-trans agenda into the workings of multiple departments. It's not only that we see similarities in language and policies that really reflect his thinking and his worldview, but also there was direct communication um, and direct collaboration to the ends of a consistent government position undermining the rights and very existence of transgender people. And this undermining of the existence of trans people is why Tanya, Cecilia, and Jason put those ideas on trial. In August 2020, just a few months after they filed their lawsuit, the three of them got some big news. It was the day before Roger Severino's rule was supposed to take effect. They were on pins and needles not knowing what would happen. But out of nowhere, the judge blocked it at least temporarily, by issuing a preliminary injunction. Tanya, Cecilia, and Jason had just managed to stop doctors and hospitals from turning trans people away. And it was a big deal. When Jason found out at home on a work day, he was overcome with emotion. I just started crying. Like, not like, oh my God, but like weeping, huge tears, snot, like sobs. 
Then I was like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, there's nobody here but me. <laughs> like, it's so strange. Um, like, you want to, like, if you're in an office, like, you're weeping, you're crying, you're hugging, you're laughing, you know, but it's just like silence. Just you. And like, you're sobbing, echoing out the wall. Despite the win, Jason knew that this was not over. By moving quickly and suing the government right away, he, Tanya, and Cecilia were able to keep the rule at bay. But it's still being fought in court. Roger Severino was so effective at using the bureaucracy to his ends that he's tied the Biden administration in knots trying to unwind it all. That's why this is still before a federal judge. We needed a win. And I'm not so foolhardy to think that a preliminary injunction in a single case is like liberation or equality. It just didn't seem like good things could happen, you know, at that point. Getting a win like that helps. Seeing a repudiation of that kind of hate and bias is good for the soul. And so good, in fact, that he let Tanya know about it right away. I was in the middle of a Zoom, and I think I stood up and jumped up in the middle of the Zoom. I said, yes! And, I, you know, I hope nobody heard me. I hope I had my mic off. But I was in the middle of a Zoom meeting, and I, I was just, I was ecstatic. How does it feel to potentially be making history with this case and with uh, your life? I'm just wondering how that feels, if you've ever taken time to think about what the impact of what you're doing through this case might be historically. I know that it came out of fear and panic and anger and wanting to respond, but have you had a chance to think about just the other ways in which it may be in some ways revolutionary? You know, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Thank you for telling me, but I didn't really I didn't really think about I was making history. I was more focused on transgender people, bodily autonomy, and the right to self-determine their own gender identity. And, you know, I've been fighting so long, I, I don't really look at the, I didn't really look on it on that, that mezzo level. This is what I've been doing for many, many years. Uh, it's just a continuation of, you know, what I was already doing. And I didn't see it as on a national level. I, I feel great about it. I feel I need to do this. I need to stand up for the rights of the transgender children, for trans folks. I need to keep up the fight because of the harm that it's doing to my community. For Cecilia, the wind feels profound too. What was that like for you? And what went through your mind as this person who was almost thrown out of the country, but had in a way, helped it lived up to its highest ideals with what you did? I cried, but I cry for anything, Amara. I cry, I cry. <laughs> it's very easy. Crying is, comes very easy to me. So it's not like, don't take this that I cry as a, as, as a thing that is something like out of this world. No, I cry <laughs> for anything. So I cried, but it was, um, It was a sense of um, a sense of like I do have some power over my reality. Hmm. I do have some power 
over how my life goes. I do get to shape some of my reality. It's not like I'm here and I just have to sit down and take it. I do have a sense of autonomy over my life. And that is fucking rewarding. And during our conversation, Cecilia mentioned just how grateful she was to be able to live in the United States, which struck me given the fact that our government have been trying to strip away her civil rights. You kept giving the impression over and over and over that you were so glad that America had accepted and had embraced you and had allowed you to become more of the person that you are. And I said, and I continue to feel this even more so now, that we are incredibly lucky that you chose us. The United States is lucky that you came here and that you stayed and that you kept going despite all the odds. The country is a much better place with you in it than without it. You're being way too generous with me. But thank you. I'll take it all. It gives a high. <laughs> <laughs> it gives a high. It keeps me high. It gives me the high for the day. There's one more thing that just keeps coming up for me. Heritage is vast. It had the power to try to redefine what civil rights are in this country. And it spread its tentacles throughout the federal government to do so as part of a 50-year campaign. But it's not alone. As we have seen throughout this series, the whole anti-trans hate machine itself is massive. And size like that can only come from, well, y'all know, from money. And there just seems to be this huge mismatch in resources between those pushing trans hate and the organizations fighting back. No conversation better illustrated that for me than the one I had with Sharita Gruberg. Now, just as a reminder, Sharita's at the Center for American Progress. They were created as a direct response to the Heritage Foundation, as a center-left check on this right-wing organization. But I wondered, were they actually a check? Were they actually able to be equal in scale and scope to places like the Heritage Foundation? The interests that are funding this are not interested in what we do. They're not interested in expanding democracy, in reigning in the power of corporations, because It is the corporations. It is the wealthy that are funding um, the work that Heritage does. And so I asked her, what exactly does the money mismatch between them look like? Sure. Can I take a moment to look up Heritage's budget right now? Of course you can. That is not top of mind. All right. So we are at... (laughs) It's even worse than I remember. You want to know what it is? We have 53 million and they have 321 million. (laughs) Sorry, this is so outrageous. And the forces with this kind of money driving the anti-trans hate machine aren't only trying to erase trans people. Their actual agenda is so much bigger and so much more ambitious and so much more frightening. And they are willing to pour billions into it. 
The end goal is to establish God's kingdom on earth, even if it means unraveling American democracy along the way. Next time on the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality. We hope to steward wisely all the resources that God has entrusted to our care. The money is woven in to this, to this world. These are people who are using the institutions and the tools of democracy in order to end it. Be sure to subscribe to our show and spread the word about the work we're doing. Hi, I'm Oliver Ashkline, the senior producer of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality. This project is made possible with support from the New York Women's Foundation and the Heising Simons Foundation. This episode was executive produced and hosted by our fearless leader, Amara Jones. Tyler Wilson, Annie Ning, Callie Wright, Jay McAuliffe, and Ruby Flodzinski are incredible producers who have done so much essential work on this series. Audrey Quinn is our fantastic editor, guiding our storytelling with a steady hand. Alexander Charles Adams has been making each of these episodes sound amazing with their sound design and mixing. Montana Thomas is our production coordinator, keeping all of the plates spinning and trains running on time. Audrey Jones has also been helping with scheduling and doing a fabulous job. Sydney Bauer did critical research for this series. And the one and only Jillian Brandstetter is in charge of communication and outreach for this series, along with L Communications. Our digital strategy is led by the very talented and hardworking Daniela Capistrano of DCAP Media. Social media and production assistance by Yannick Ike Mirko, who is an absolute ray of sunshine. Resistance Communication is supporting our show with graphic and social media support. Meticulous fact-checking from Justin Klosko. And our intern is the wonderful Jordan Marana. Our top-notch theme music was composed by Ben Draghi. This episode also had music courtesy of Craftcase, Martin Moses, Mo Runa, Jacob Album, Lotus, and Alexander Charles Adams. <laughs>